Hello, and welcome to Wonderstruck. I am your host, Elizabeth Revere. I'm a clinical psychologist, a yoga teacher, and a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. I'm really curious about our experiences of wonder and awe and how they transform us. My guest on this episode is Father Francis Tiso. He's a Catholic priest and renowned scholar of Tibetan Buddhism. He reads in 12 languages, ministers to migrants, is a maker of plant medicines, and advocates staunchly for interfaith dialogue. Notably, Father Tiso is the author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, The Dissolution of the Material Body, and the Case of Kempo Acho. The book tells the incredible story of a Tibetan monk, Kenpo Acho, who prepared his body to turn into radiant light through retreat, prayer, and meditation. When Kenpo Acho died, he achieved this phenomenon. It's called the Rainbow Body, and in the year 2000, Father Tiso went to Tibet to report on the profound significance of this event and to learn how it connects to resurrection across other religions including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father Tiso and I met up last summer at Wonderstruck's first ever symposium in Bon Convento, Italy, held in partnership with Five Books and Harvard Divinity School's Center for the Study of World Religions. Since talking about transcending the bodily state and meditating yourself into a rainbow is no small topic, this is the first installment of a two-part conversation. You know, I really would love to get into this fascinating matter about the rainbow body. Like, you know, why does it matter? You know, what you have encountered pursuing it. And I want to ask you about making the decision to write a book about it. Mm. The idea or the phenomenon of the rainbow body is that the body dissolves and turns into the rainbow light in a way that spreads across the universe. The, per, the person, the spirit, in a way that is beneficial and healing and helpful to other people? Yeah, the, of course, the, the fundamental intent is always for the benefit of all beings, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, the, <laughs> you, you know, the, the body, uh, you know, in the case of our friend, the great Kenpo, you know, who, uh, I'm sorry I never actually met him personally, yeah, you know. know right? uh, he died in 1998, and we went there in 2000. Mm-hmm. But this man was a man of immense compassion, all right? He, was, he had a number of disciples, uh, and, and it was, you know, that variety of persons, from the nuns, you know, in Kanza, to the villagers, his own relatives, uh, but he was one of those people, you know, he could calm wild animals, calm thieves and brigands and bandits and all of that, and, and calm people who were mad at him, you know, and, and also f- flow skillfully uh, under the circumstances of the Chinese invasion of eastern Tibet, yeah, yeah, you see? So, yeah. you know, that's challenging, too. How many of us have had to deal with that, you know? Exactly. Or, you were, you're a criminal because of your your profession of faith, yeah, you know, and uh, and he managed to do that too, and uh, and then you have this, then at the end of his life, his body is transformed into light, and it's already manifesting signs before he dies. Then the day of his death, he's saying the the, the mantra of compassion, mm-hmm. right? 
He's not doing some complicated tantric practice. He's doing the simple re repetition of the mantra, Om Mani Pebe Hom. You know, mm. the, the mantra of mm -hmm. uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Mm -hmm. And he was very devoted to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And, uh, you know, that who is an emanation of that Bodhisattva. And that, that was an expression of his wholeness, you know. So then he breathes his last, and the disciples begin to notice a change. So the 82-year-old skin becomes pink and supple like that of a child, mm -hmm. you know. And then they cover the body with his yellow monastic robe, right. and... Uh, and they go quickly to go talk to his friend about 100 kilometers away to ask what to do next, <laughs> you know, because they knew that something was about to happen because there had already been rainbows in the sky. Right before he said. Yeah, so now you get rainbows, you get music, you get perfumes, you get like a, a light mysterious show. light rain coming down, and this explosion of light that was seen from hundreds of, of kilometers away. All right, and, uh, and that went on for eight days. Yeah. And then when they lifted the cloth, there was nothing there. Nothing. You know, there is a report that was published saying that there were hair and nails, but there were not. That was just somebody, you know, your boilerplate. Yes, yes. You know, that was just because that often it is said that hair and nails are left behind. So but in this case, there, were, there was no... None of that. You know, as you're telling the story, I sort of was having this experience of like, I, it's like I'm just sort of feeling the sense of awe and kind of amazement, and I wondering what was it like for you to to be talking to these people that were firsthand accounts? How did you handle it? How do you deal with it? Like, were you just kind of like sitting back, going like? Okay, listening. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, and but listening with an open heart. Right. You know? Because yes. when uh, when we well take for example the, all right. Of course, just getting there was not so easy. You know? <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> right? There's plenty of tales to tell about that. But then you know this, uh, the approach to his monastery, in the town of Kanza. I didn't know where I was going. Yeah. I knew that there were monks there that knew him, that were close to him, but I didn't even have their names. I mean, we had the names of the Rinpoches connected with that monastery, but as we found out later, they don't actually live in the monastery. So the, the, the gang, you know, the, the, the team is behind me, mm. you know, and I'm marching forward. I'm saying, I'm sure we'll figure something out. And, uh, and so this monastery is huge. It's like an Italian village on top of a hill, yes, you know, yes. with many wow. different mm -hmm. little buildings and dwellings and temples and all of that. And uh, so we get to what looked like a doorway. And who is standing in the doorway but a, a young layman uh, with a big cowboy hat on his head, as the compas like to wear. <laughs> and uh, it's as if he's waiting for us, you know. We didn't know who he was, but very quickly. Uh, my translator spoke with him in Lhasa dialect. He understood Lhasa dialect, and he understood what we were all about, and took us immediately to the elderly monks who had eight chapters of the biography of Kenpo Acha. Uh. And we had a lovely conversation with them, and they said, if you want chapter nine, you have to go across the river to the nuns 
we'll have the ninth chapter. So we did that later, you know, and, and met the nuns. And when we are sitting there reading the ninth chapter together with the nuns, it was about a monastery of about 20, 25 wonderful women. And we get to the line, faith and devotion. Mm. And uh, so I read it aloud in Tibetan, and I said in English, this is what it's all about, isn't it? And one after another, the tears start to come. Oh, my God. You know? So, and it was awesome. And the team, of course, was completely overwhelmed. And then in following days, then we actually went out to the village where the hermitage was, where all this took place. And, you know, as we're approaching the hermitage, you just, your heart is pounding, mm. you know. And the, the, the young nuns and monks were gathering yellow and red flowers mm. to put on the altar in the, in the, in the, in the hermitage. And, and we're all doing prostrations, mm. you know, as mm -hmm. we go up the hill, you know. And we get there and we circumambulate, you know. I, um, as a priest, Let's see, Catholic priest does circumambulation this way. The Buddhists do it this way. Oh, really? <laughs> right. Clockwise, we do it anti-clockwise. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. With the yin and the yang. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were they, like, when you were said, okay, the faith and devotion, that's what this is about, mm. and they are tearing up, and mm. here you are, a Catholic priest, and here they are, mm. Buddhist monks, and, it, like, none of that mattered. Right. It was just all the... It was all about the same thing. Yeah. In every experience I've had with dialogue with the uh, Tibetans and Nepalis, um, I've never encountered a barrier based on the fact that I was a Catholic priest. On the contrary, there was an appreciation, mm. you know, and a welcome. You know, they really liked the idea of being in dialogue with a priest. Yeah. And remember also that even some very important uh, Rinpoches, like uh, the venerable uh, Khandra Rinpoche, who is the head of Minderling Monastery. Here you have a woman head of a male yes, monastery. Yes. a remarkable woman, one of my important teachers. Uh, you know, she was trained by the nuns mm. in, in the schools in North India. So they know the Catholic Church. Uh, with its clinics and with uh, the schools and all of that. And they have a great deal of respect for the presence of the church in uh, India, the Himalayas, Sikkim, and so on. So they know there's something there. One of the most uh, delightful memories I have of my research in Dolpo, which is northern Nepal, just on the Tibet border, um, where I'm there with these lamas for several weeks studying, photographing, and making notes about their collection of sacred paintings, okay? And meeting with them and asking them questions about how they, how they paint and how they make their colors and You're all of that. And, uh, and then I do my, my mass, you know, I celebrate the mass and, and all of that. And they're doing ceremonies in the temple and they invite me to come because they know I can read Tibetan so I join in and chant with them mm -hmm. and then afterwards I go up on the roof and set up an altar and celebrate mass 
And uh, one time there were two rainbows in the sky after we did this. You know, uh. one for the, the the ceremony we did down below, and one that I did. You know, and everybody knew it. You know, it was not not a big surprise or anything like that. It was just kind of like, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, that's the yes. way things work. That's you the know? way things go. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they would they started calling me the Jesus Lama, <laughs> Is, Isulama, Isulama, Isulama. You know, so you know, that's brilliant. Yeah. So. So that what so what do they think of Jesus? Do they think of Jesus actually as a as, as kind a, of like a, a like a Buddha, you know, like a Buddha, of, you know, as a kind of uh, manifestation on earth of uh, of Buddha nature? And uh, I mean, I had a conversation with two monks. I think it was at Drikung Monastery in Tibet, right mm -hmm. inside Tibet, about uh, the the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. And uh, they completely understood what that meant. They did? Yes, because it was, a bodhisattva gives his life, you know, for everyone. You know, so the Jesus on the cross to them made perfect sense. You know, they, I, I think they, oh, the, the, the confusion they had was that they had been told by somebody that communism, you know, as in Chinese Communist Party, came from the West. It was uh -huh. a Western philosophy. And so they asked me, so was Jesus the source of this philosophy? You see? <laughs> right? Because, you know, great, a great bodhisattva is the source of a great, you know, world philosophy always. Right. So, right. so was he the source of this? And I had to do some explaining, you know? Oh, that's really uh, funny. But, but, and then we get to the, the question of redemption and the cross and self-giving and, and perfect uh, selfless love. And that makes perfect sense to, uh, to someone who's trained in bodhisattva uh, practices. Right. Yeah, so. Right. And, well, and what about the reciprocal as far as like in Catholicism or other priests or communities with Catholics? Yeah, I think here we have a very interesting problem. We have uh, our missionary priests in Nepal, Japan, many that I've known in China and Taiwan, who were really great scholars of the religions of the peoples right. that they, among whom they worked. And uh, not only scholars, but even in some cases practicing, like you know some of those who have become Zen Roshis, for example. Uh, Yves Regan, for example, was a French Jesuit in Taiwan who knew Buddhism thoroughly and was also practicing meditation. You know, a great, a great man, a really great man. Yeah. Uh, Enomiya LaSalle in Japan and so forth. So those who actually know from the inside you know, the greatness mm -hmm. of these cultures mm -hmm. uh, would see uh, all of these religions as manifesting the intentions of God, mm -hmm. all right? The, the, mm -hmm. the, the Word comes forth from the Father, and then the Word becomes flesh, and we recognize that in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes forth to bring life to the creation that has been uh, generated through the Son, through the, through the Word of God. So the Word and the Spirit work together in the cosmos mm -hmm. to bring everyone back to the Father. Right, mm -hmm. so when we see uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and and Islam and and the archaic religions of the world, we see manifestations of the 
primordial seeds of truth mm -hmm. in the word. Yes. Okay. Yes. What we're running into today is a very noisy group of people. <laughs> All right. I don't want to. But it's more of a like a more of a superficial level. There are some people making a lot of noise. Uh, I mean, even you know about the Pope and his openness to the Amazon uh, native people and now to the Canadian native people. And so they'll make a lot of uh, protestations that somehow these are false religions invented by the devil to deceive yeah. mankind, yeah. that kind of thing. But this is not the official position of the church. And even before hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, it was, uh, a teaching of the church that there is, there are ways of salvation outside the church, okay? And that, that to say you had to be physically a member of the church in order to attain eternal life was not, uh, was not taught. I mean, it was taught, but it was not the official teaching. So the and Pope the, doesn't think that. Right, and so like even Pius Twelfth. In, uh, in the 1940s, excommunicated several people because they taught that only if you became a Catholic Christian could you be saved. So why is this not clear? Because I like, don't know. It because just... I, in California, when I was out there working in the parishes, there were many people who told me we were taught that everybody else is damned. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like almost like the, yeah. you know, when you get to like you were saying about like the, the the Catholic mystical theology or the deeper, the deeper kinds of truths or seeds, mm -hmm. that it's similar across culture or tradition, and that it's not. I mean, you can't split it up and divide it in all these different ways because mm -hmm. there's so many. There are these commonalities, which is a kind mm -hmm. of unpopular thing, I think, to say. Yeah, yeah. It seems that we have a, you know. <laughs> Alas, the people who make a lot of noise, of course, tend to, tend to attract a lot of attention, all right? And that's a strategy, all yes. right? Let's be honest, it's a strategy. And it's very much contrary uh, to the gut instincts of a true mystic. A true mystic almost would prefer you know, to be in the forest or in the cave and not get involved in these arguments, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, even um, even my, my Jewish friend, I won't even say who this person is, because uh, during our dialogue with several rabbis and scholars in Israel online a couple of days ago, she listened, answered a few questions, and then quietly left the room when things got controversial. Mm. But she really lives, you know, the Jewish mystical tradition. She mm. doesn't, didn't want to just argue about it, you mm -hmm. know. And it was very interesting. And so the instinct of a person who has been given a certain kind of a gift is that, oh, this is too beautiful and too sacred to, you know, run through uh, the mill of, um, you know, this kind of push and pull of a dialectic, mm -hmm. you know. Well, what about this, and what about that, and what about this, and what contradiction is here, and what contradiction is there? So it makes me think of that again, like being in the intellect or the an an analytic thinking process mm -hmm. and dividing versus being more in the contemplative. And then it makes me wonder about, like, you know, from your own experience, your own contemplative tradition and experience of 
you know, I don't, I don't want to split them into two worlds because they're integrated, but like how that then informs, which I think you're already describing, how you live your life. Mm -hmm. And then it reminds me of this, again, where I had heard you interviewed about this from, from Luke 12, 13, where what is said in the dark shall mm -hmm. be said in the light. Yeah. And is that related to what you're talking yeah, about? Sure. Because then Jesus is saying in that passage that things that were considered mystical teachings may be handed on only from master to disciple. The, the, the disciples would announce, all right, openly, mm -hmm. all right? And, uh, and, and of course, Jesus was aware that this was going to cause controversy. But they, these are things that had to be broken open. And this is why even in the letter to the Ephesians, there's the passage about um, things that were hidden in past ages but now are revealed, all right, that are made, that are openly uh, proclaimed and discussed, okay? And this is about mysticism. Exactly, yeah. And the, but the mysticism in the sense of a mystical awareness about the intentions of God from all eternity, okay? And uh, that's why the first chapter of Colossians and the first chapter of Ephesians, the first chapter of John, right, those, those chapter one, they, in those three texts, you have those great hymns which describe this, you know, that especially that uh, hymn in Ephesians, which uh, says, before the world was created, we were known in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. Right, so the, there's, there is a, a way in which conscious beings were already known to God and, and abiding in God before there was a material creation. Okay. That's just, this is why a person like Evagrius of Pontus is so interesting, because mm. he brings yeah. out the meaning of that in his teachings in the, in the fourth century. Okay, he, he shows you how that uh, primordial union of mm -hmm. all beings with God, all right, then... And that's very Buddhist. Right, it sounds very Buddhist, but it certainly sounds very Dzogchen, you know, it might not even be Buddhist, but it's, it, uh, it is uh, very close to the Dzogchen idea of primordial light pulsating the whole of creation incessantly, moment by moment, all right, so that every moment of perception is Contact, direct contact with primordial reality. Mm. Okay, this is kadak, pure from the beginning, which is, is a dynamic process. It's not a static process. Pure from the beginning means everything that you know has ever emanated into the world of perception is pure from the beginning. All right, so that this is what Ephesians is saying. All right, it's saying it in terms of the the narrative of a savior. The story of the Savior, but it, it's saying who is the Savior saving? The Savior is saving the the entities that from before the world began were already created to be oriented toward that primordial reality. So okay. bringing them back in and bringing way. them back. Is that like when you were talking? My association was is that kind of when you had that vision in the church? Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you saw? That kind of light. When I when you said I had you the had... experience of Christ coming out of the tabernacle. Okay, not that. Well, you had that, mm -hmm. but there was. I thought you had also said you sort of saw the evolution. Oh yeah. Of yeah. like the creation and the evolution of humanity. The, now that one did, wasn't so much about this primordial pulsation. Okay. But it was about 
what is, uh, in other words, there is this creation, all right, and this unfolding in time of creation, but then what is your place in it? You know, where, where do you belong? And you belong in it as, uh, as the priest of it, that is to offer it back to its source, okay? So it's, uh, this is the priest from, from all eternity according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, so that, you know, that symbol over here. Yes. Okay, is for the 1968 vision. Oh, right. wow. You see? So that's what you saw. Yeah, something like, well, this is a way of summing it up. But I actually saw, you know, the stars and the planets and the animals and minerals and all of that. All of the things, of course, that had fascinated me as a child. Yes. You know, then becoming full-blown, you know, in their cosmic implications. That was... So like you, as a child, you were being almost, in a way, yeah, seeing vents, yeah, prepped and seeing vestiges <laughs> of it. Yeah. Where are you now? <laughs> <laughs> Where are we now in this, this thing? Because, the, well, what happens is the, the evolution of these visionary guidance experiences, you know, goes toward you know, the priesthood of all things visible and invisible, okay? So that's the integration, not only of creation, but also of the sacred ways of humanity which include, of course, the Eucharist and all of the other uh, religions uh, insofar as they are in harmony with that primordial purity, okay? Mm -hmm. Which is that pul vibrating pulsation yeah. of energy right. of life, the life exactly. force. But what do you think about like this kind of practices of rainbow body or body of light, meditation? Um, you mentioned recently like the, the, the connection of meditation to the awakening of the heart. Mm. Like all of these things seem like very good practices. But do you, do you see things like the book that you've written in a way to like influence the popular people who are like, oh, mm. that's really interesting. It seems so unbelievable, but now I'm like, we're talking about it, like, of course, yeah, you yeah, know, of yeah, course, yeah, 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 it's a rainbow yeah. body, just like, but it's, it's still to most people, it's, it's very out there. Yeah. Like, how do we connect this to, you know, I don't know, my cousin, yeah. for example. <laughs> sure. I mean, there, there are, of course, the relic tour, you know, where they went yeah. around and presented many different kinds of Buddhist relics, including the the very shrunken body of uh, Lama Achu, who was the friend of Kenpo Achu. Right. All right. They brought and he was around. the fellow who showed us the photos. Yeah. You know of himself radiating light in the dark. Oh yes. Right, and he's the one who said, "I will manifest at death," and he did. You see, so there are these evidences that something uh, he manifested he did not rainbow but light well it, yeah yeah well he I mean, the, the two photos showed his body in the dark radiating light then after he died in 2008 his body shrank down to about the size of a, of your fingers okay and that relic is preserved and that's part of the relic tour and then they also have the famous ring cell the little the colored spheres that are found after cremation and other things like that right right so there are these phenomena which suggest that something physical really happens okay right all right so then of course our interviews also would tend to support that something physical actually happened all right now but apart from that, there's the question of what is the meaning of this for 
our friends, our, our, our times. And um, that's why the retreat, the retreat with the Bonpos was so meaningful to me because if you do those practices, and there are 15 practices that are connected with that particular sequence of uh, yogic meditation practices, you do those practices, you will get to what I consider to be the turning point, all right, and that is the Dumo, the, the yogic heat practice. And the Dumo or yogic heat practice brings the energy of the body, the five winds as they're called, into the central channel of the subtle body, you know, at the heart. And as you do this practice, you will notice a kind of luminosity with your eyes closed, mm. okay? Now, as you keep doing this, and you do it, and it's supposed to be done in a 100-day retreat, okay? You do a 100-day retreat with that practice, all right, with breath control and the proper posture and so on and so forth. You can detect the stabilization of this light that you see, okay? So that you can actually work with it. Mm. It becomes a workable feature of your consciousness, Yeah. All right? Now, we apply that to other discoveries that we came up with, with the interviews of the Tamil Siddha people and uh, other lamas, other yogis, and so on and so forth. Then you begin to realize that that inner light is the prana, it is the life energy, right? And you will uh, be able to work with and perfect your control over that energy in your body-mind complex, and you will be able to spread it out into your whole body, and in fact, into your whole environment. All right? Yeah. And, and this means that there are methods that are accessible, even to the average person, that can make available a degree of control and integration with some very profound spiritual truths about ourselves as human beings. Yes. Uh, two friends of mine were down from Denmark a few weeks ago, and they are both Dzogchen practitioners. She is also a, a priest in the Church of Denmark and has mm -hmm. a parish. And her husband is mm -hmm. a descendant of uh, some very distinguished clergy and hymn writers in the Danish church. And they told the story of a woman in Denmark who had been brought up a materialist, an atheist, and had this remarkable experience of light and herself began to radiate light oh visible to other people. And uh, I, you know, so they told me this story, you know, and apparently she's written a couple of books and had some uh, both tragic and remarkable experiences in her life and how this experience made her what she is today, which is a compassionate and loving person, okay? Mm -hmm. But what's interesting here is that you have phenomena like this uh, popping up from here, you know, here and there. And, and this is something that we hear about in the Himalayas, from yogis, healers in the Philippines, healers in uh, Latin America, and so on and so forth, the light phenomena. Yes. So, and even light coming from your hands uh, in, in varying, various like healing processes. Or just, yeah. yeah, or just any kind yeah. of a healing practice. See, so all of these things turn out to even be use, useful. Right. Well, it's in our common <laughs> lexicon, too, like yeah. the inner light. Like, oh, yes. you know, 
that's like, like I want to see your inner light or work on mm. developing the inner light. It's like mm. you just, I feel like I've heard that in so many contexts my, during my life without yeah. really thinking, oh, it actually means something. There's really light. It's yeah, not there's just really a, light. a metaphor. It's yeah, a, it's not yeah. just a metaphor. And if it was a metaphor, if it is a metaphor, why that metaphor? Right. Because what right. is it a metaphor for? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a this is why do we study, right? We don't really study to get there. We study to get the vocabulary so that we have the tools to get there. Right. <laughs> so. Right. The last question I'm just going to ask you, if, if you feel, and I think you're probably just going, you're going to say, I think so, yes, but um, this kind of study or pr these practices or retreats that you're talking about, um, will be of benefit to people to develop more compassion and greater companionship and fellowship. Yeah, well, clearly the, the two pages in Richie Davidson's book, you know, in Altered Traits, mm -hmm. that describe uh, the altered traits and describe the settings in which altered traits are supported and lived are magnificent. Mm -hmm. You know, because he, he's basically saying that, you know, to belong to a community to be part of a community, to be in service of others, you mm -hmm. know, and all of that is all part of this. It's not just uh, living in a cave right. in the dark. Right. You know, you go into the cave in the dark for a while to find out more about who and what you are so that you can share it mm -hmm. with others, you see. But we share it with others not in mm -hmm. a way to mm -hmm. beat people over the head or to say, I'm better than you, or to say, you know, uh, uh, we have to straighten the whole world out tomorrow. No, we're, uh, we're it's the planting of seeds that will grow in many different ways. Yes. Okay? And, and so we've, re we've been given this gift. We are astonished. You know, your wonderstruck expression is, yeah. is, is very much to the point. We are wonderstruck by the fact that every moment is a revelation of divine love, mm -hmm. right? And then we share that with others through what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, so whether so this morning I, I delivered a passport yeah. to our Nigerian friend who lives a few miles away from here. You know, and is working the restaurant and, in, in the, the restaurant, yeah. right? So the the little gestures of companionship. I'm with you, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. with you. Uh, when when we go to visit yeah. the sick, just the fact yes. that you're you're there makes a difference. Okay? Absolutely. Uh, I know. I, I I've known people, amazing people. There was a woman in Eureka, California, where she was pretty much ninety percent bedridden. Mm. And yet she had hundreds of people that she was helping, if not thousands, through emails, through mailing them films and books. She was in touch with all these people. I said, you're doing more than I'm doing as a priest, you know, from your bed, right? Yeah. You know, this kind of thing, gestures of kindness, gestures of caring, being there for someone, you know, it's yeah. wonderful. It is wonderful. Huh. And, and, it, and it, it cannot be, it's almost like, you know, the if you have that long lever, you can move the world. Because even if you're doing it yes, you know, in a yes, tiny yes, community, yes, yes. it has that effect. Yeah, it's, the, I think it makes me feel like it's, like, it's, like, it's like sublime joy. It's that it just sort of mm -hmm. radiates. And it, it, there's a calming aspect to sure. it, like it's okay. You yeah. know, it takes you out of that rushing around, having to do or 
I don't know, improve or whatever you're, you're supposed yeah, to be or doing. Or worse yet, to compete, or outdo, compete or, you know, yeah. or put down others, you know. No, we don't want to do that. You know, uh, the other thing too, when you're talking about the light, you know, that, so I'm, I love yoga, it's, but the, you know, the whole namaste, the, the uh, light in me yes. bows to the light yeah. in you. It's like, it's just, it's, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's in, it's in our language. It's in, it's just kind of everywhere. And like the fact that these things, like are scientists, as far as you're aware, or maybe they are at the mind life, are they interested to look Absolutely. at these kinds of yes. emanations? And yeah, compassion is a big theme for mind and life. Yeah, because it is the practical application. And in Tibetan Tantra, you know, the, uh, the, the scepter, the dorje, you know, yes, represents yes, 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 skillful yes. means. Yes, yes. And skillful means is grounded in com the realization of compassion, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that the, the plethora, the vast spectrum of possible things one can do for the good of others mm. is all in that. Mm. All right. The the bell represents the realization of of emptiness, of openness. It's a better better translation. The openness of all phenomena. The possibility that this could transform into that mm -hmm. is all there. And then this is the skillful means that makes it available to people where they are, mm -hmm. where they are, moment to moment. Well, I mean, I can see that you practice what you say. <laughs> you walk your you talk. And I guess I can't help, I have to end with one last question, and I already said that before, but I can't help it. I mean, are you, do you practice these types of meditations? Mm -hmm. Sure. The one that you, because you had actually sent me a write-up, mm. where you imagine with the, the light and so forth. Yeah. Is it, 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 and so you practice that, and then you have also your prayers and mass, right. and you combine them. You're not sure. combine them, but you're doing well, both. One feeds into the other because you know uh, you have mass and the liturgy of the hours, which all of which involve uh, intense mindful awareness, okay, and aesthetic mm. uh, awareness, and then uh, in in private prayer, which uh, may be very very simple, you know. They, I think one of the most uh, important forms of personal prayer for me is the self-forgetfulness that occurs when one simply sits in yes, quiet yes. in nature yes. you know and allows everything to to say what it has to say you know it, it is remarkable remar especially in hiking if you go hiking in sort of a, I forgot who I am Yes. Because I'm surrounded by all of this, which has so much to tell, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. right? The self-forgetfulness. Or if I'm sitting in my meditation cabin, you know, and there's the cat, and there are the birds, <laughs> and there are the, you know, insects, and all kinds of things going on, mm -hmm. all around, right? And that, that stillness. Uh, this is the uh, Wendell Berry poem, you know, yeah. the quiet of, yeah. you know, nature. It kind of grabs you. That was Father Francis Tiso. Thank you so much, Father Tiso. Please come back next time on Wonderstruck for the second part of our conversation when we'll discuss mortality and ritual, mourning and love, meditation and illness, and some of Father Tiso's own experiences of wonder, from visions of Christ to communicating with the dead through his dreams. For more information about Wonderstruck, our guests, and some really exciting upcoming events, check out wonderstruck.org. And please follow the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and subscribe on YouTube. 
We truly want to hear from you with your feedback, reviews, and ratings. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at Wonderstruck Pod. Wonderstruck is produced by Wonderstruck Productions, along with the teams at Bailey Newman and Freetime Media. Special thanks to Brian O'Kelly, Eliana Leftru, and Travis Reese. Thank you for listening. And remember, be open to the wonder in your own life. Thank you.